Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. We're in a series called Invitations from Jesus. And didn't Karen Miller do an excellent job last Sunday? Isn't that wonderful? She did such a great job sharing on the intimacy of Jesus' invitation. And with, together with the teaching team, it was intentional on how the, these two Sundays lined up. Because we didn't want to put the proverbial cart before the horse. We wanted to share first and foremost that Jesus himself is the invitation. Jesus is not only the invitor, but he is the invitation. And so if we miss that, we miss everything. Jesus is the invitation. And so uh, Karen shared last Sunday on what it means to partner with Jesus, to simply behold him, and how much of an intimate invitation that actually is coming from Jesus. And this whole series is based on the words of Jesus coming from Revelation 3.20 when he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This morning we're going to spend a little bit of time on the invitation to purpose, the mission of Jesus. You know, Rick Warren came out with a little book a few years back called The Purpose Driven Life. Have any of you read? Chances are a lot of hands will go up. Have any? Yeah. That book has sold more than 50 million copies since its uh, writing in the early 2000s, I believe. 50 million people. So it's no secret that people, in general, human beings, are looking for a sense of meaning, a sense of mission and purpose and significance here on the earth. Asking questions like, is there more for me than this provincial life? Nobody? Bell? Got it. Bell? Got it. There must be more than this provincial life. Everyone's looking for meaning. And this morning, we're going to talk about purpose, but what I would do a horrible job in in saying, if I didn't say this, is that this is not an invitation to simply do more things. Please, please. We're going to deal with the tension this morning of doing and being. And every time we talk about these two aspects of following Jesus, it can get a little bit touchy, a little bit tricky to talk about what it means to have purpose and meaning in the person of Jesus. And that would be the last thing that I think anyone here would want you to walk away feeling is that that preacher, that pastor, that church just wants us to do more stuff. Is that really what Jesus meant when he gave the Great Commission? Is that really the heart behind what it means to follow Jesus, just to do more stuff for God? I mean, that's not what I signed up for. When I chose to give my heart and my life to Jesus, I didn't sign up to do more good things. So let's hear that first and foremost, that Jesus is the invitation. He's the inviter. And this is not just simply an invitation to do more things or to do more stuff for God. 
I wanted to share with you a story from one of my favorite authors. His name is Bob Goff. Some of you might be familiar with him. He's written two wonderful books. One book is called Everyone Always, and the other book is called Love Does. I would highly suggest reading either or both of them. They're fabulous. He's whimsical. He's super witty about how he writes and shares stories and ties in the truth of the gospel to those stories. So I wanted to share a little bit of his story with you. And to set up the context, Goff and his friend Brandon are going to Washington, D.C. for a business meeting. And they just get in from their flight, and they're all dressed up in suits and ties, and they see a bunch of cars that are awkwardly parked around the Library of, Con of Congress. There's all kinds of barricades there. Now, this is pre-January 6, 2021. There's all kinds of barricades there. And so they set out with a plan. They run back to their hotel... And they change into t-shirts and jeans. And then they sprint back to where they see all these cars parked. They dodge a couple of security guards. They run across a couple of lawns through some bushes. And they finally get to a side entrance of the Library of Congress where the crew went in and walked in as if they belonged there and nobody said a thing. You see, they were filming the movie National Treasure 2 at the Library of Congress that night. Have anybody seen that movie, the, library, uh, the, the National Treasure movies? Yeah, they're great. We love them. Sarah and I love them. So they're filming that in the Library of Congress, and Bob Goff and his friend kind of sneak through, and they get through all these checkpoints, and finally, they follow these signs that say set on it, and they get to the security guard and a metal detector, and the security guard says, where are your crew badges? And they said, we don't have them. And so the security guard mumbles to his girlfriend about the ineptitude of the crew or whatever. And he says, just go on through, bring your security badges next time. And so they get through and they find themselves on the set in the middle of the Library of Congress at 2 a.m. with its millions of books and shelves and they're filming the scene. Do you remember the scene where um, they're looking for the presidential book of secrets? And after the filming of the scene, they began to plan their escape without getting caught. And suddenly, uh, Nicolas Cage and Diane Kruger round the corner, and Bob Goff and his friend just fall into line with the entourage, as if nothing has ever changed. They walked right out without a question being asked to another thrilling adventure. And then Bob Goff writes this. This is the goods right here. Listen to this. Quote, there are a lot of things that I don't get invited to. I've never been invited to the Oscars or Paul McCartney's birthday or to a space shuttle launch. I'm still waiting on my invitation to the filming of National Treasure 3. If I got an invitation to any of those, I'd definitely go. There's nothing like the feeling of being included. There's only one invitation it would kill me to refuse, yet I'm tempted to turn it down all the time. Hello? I get the invitation every day when I wake up to actually live a life of complete engagement, a life of whimsy, a life where love does. It's an invitation to actually live, to fully participate in this amazing life and God's plan of salvation for one more day. 
Nobody turns down an invitation to the White House, the Super Bowl, Paul McCartney's birthday, but I've seen plenty of people turn down an invitation to fully live. And then Goff says this, what about you? Do you realize that you have not just been saved, but saved for a special relationship with God? so that you might have a special mission to participate in God's plan of salvation for all people. Jesus died for you, not so that you would live, but so that you might have abundant life in him through his mission in the world. He closes with this. Ah, so good. Accepting an invitation to show up in life is about moving from the bleachers or the pews to the field. It's about having things matter to us so that we stop thinking about those things and start doing something about them. Simply put, Jesus is looking for us to accept the invitation to participate. When we accept life's invitation, it's contagious too. Other people will watch us and start seeing life as more amazing, more whimsical than before. When you show up, to the big life, the people, the type who don't think they're invited, start seeing invitations everywhere. They don't think about their pain or weakness any longer. Instead, they think about how incredible a big life really is and how powerful the one who is inviting us. Jesus wants us to come. The one who is inviting you is way more powerful than any of the impediments we think we're facing. And he has just one message for us. He leans forward and whispers quietly to each of us, there's more room. There's more room for you and for me this morning to expand, to live a big life. The greatest narrative that could be told in your life is the story of Jesus with unfettered access. Your life open before him, just willing to say yes. Just tell me where, tell me who, tell me when, and I'll go. That's the greatest story that could be told in any human being's life. We see this in everywhere in Scripture. We're going to look at a passage of scripture that's one of my favorites this morning. It's Paul's letter to the Ephesus, uh, to the church at Ephesus, to the Ephesian people. And chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. If you had your Bible and you wanted to turn there or swipe there with me, you can go ahead. I love what Paul writes to the Ephesian people, to the church that he planted in Ephesus. He writes a couple of verses here where there's so much just packed theology here for us to wrap our hearts and minds around. It's worth a year's worth of study. Paul writes in Ephesus, or man, I'm getting it screwed up today. In Ephesians, come Jesus, breathe on your word. Breathe on your word. He writes this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's 
handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the invitation that we're looking at this morning is really two sides of the same coin, and Paul talks about it in these separate verses. Firstly, Paul reminds those folks he's partnering with of the grand invitation from Jesus to know him and be known by Jesus. To know God and to be known by God is the greatest invitation any person could ever receive. It's by grace, Paul says, that you have been saved through the gift of faith, not by works. You did nothing to get yourself here this morning. It's all grace. It's all a gift. There's nothing you could ever do. There's no good work that you could ever do to make God love you any more or any less. He just loves you. You're stuck with him. He won't give up on you. He won't turn out on you. He'll never give up on you. Jesus loves you with an everlasting, deep, lavishes love upon you and there's nothing you can do about it. He just loves you. Period. And he gave his life at the cross so that you and I might have fellowship with the creator of the universe. So so that our souls could find rest in the one. So that we could experience what it's like to really feel true love. So Paul says, first things first, the greatest invitation is the invitation of grace. That you did nothing to deserve the love of God in your life. But it's simply a gift, given, not earned. The purpose of Jesus is the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of Jesus settling on each one of us. As uh, the Old Testament writer says, that the glory of God would cover the surface of the earth like the waters cover the sea. It's like unfathomable that the glory of God would come and come more. That Jesus would have his rule and his reign with us. You were created to know God. The one thing, you aren't created to make more money, to climb some corporate ladder. You weren't created to, you know, live some uh, fairy tale life here on earth with your spouse ever after, uh, happily ever after. You were created to know and know the love of God, to know God and be loved by Him. This is our purpose. It's found in him. And our souls are restless until we find rest in him. Until we accept. Come out of the house with our hands up and say, I surrender. I receive your gift of grace on my life. We'll never find purpose. We'll never find greater meaning. Meaning we were created to know and be known by God. To experience his love for us. That in and of itself is the great gift. To be alive in him. That before anything else, you and I who claim Jesus as Lord are the beneficiaries of the restorative work of Christ here on the earth. And not just beneficiaries, but we are the very place where Jesus has connection with the wider world around us. We're the intersection 
of heaven meeting earth. We're, we're the lightning bolt of where heaven's culture strikes into the earth. We're the meeting place of the divine and humanity. You see that? Our purpose is to know God, to love him and be loved by him, just to behold Christ. We are, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled faces, some Moses kind of theology there, with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord or behold the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What Paul's trying to say here, he's like, hey guys, listen, you're the shiny face people. You reflect God's glory into the earth before you, into every relationship. You carry the presence of Jesus with you, lit up by the flame of the Holy Spirit, transformed, expressing a new way to be human. That's astounding. What a joy. What a glory it is to carry something of new humanity in the here and the now. That we don't have to try to make God love us. For centuries, for eons, men and women have been trying to get to God. And what a joy it is to just simply receive the reality and the real presence of Jesus that we don't have to try to get to God. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. What a joy. What a joy that we can be known by God and loved by him. That we don't have to take any more steps to try to get to him. That he's already taken those steps and leaned closer to us. And not just closer to us, but has indwelled us with his spirit. That he actually takes up residence in our lives. That some of the thoughts that you think aren't your thoughts, they're his thoughts, his dreams. His actions through you. Yeah, we're the shiny face people. It's by grace we've been saved, through faith, that Jesus is who he said he was. And he did what he set out to do. And by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, we can now have a life of purpose and meaning in him. And Paul says, not so fast. Don't put the cart before the horse. Because the second side of the coin flows from the first. He says, get that first. Before anything, behold Jesus. Whatever it costs you, whatever it takes you, fix your gaze on the person of Jesus. On Messiah Jesus. He's it. There's nowhere else you need to look. Put the blinders on and put your gaze squarely on the person of Jesus. But the second side of that coin flows out of that relationship. The meaning that we find in our lives always flows from that relationship first. Our purpose, another way to say it, is that our purpose flows from intimacy. If it doesn't, 
then we're simply doing things for, for God. How many of you ch- have tried doing that? <laughs> and how many of you know this morning that God isn't looking for people to do more stuff for him? Let's just linger there. This is a tough one for doers to hear. I realize that. I'm a doer. I like to get things done. Let's let the words of Jesus just marinate in our hearts for a second and receive the truth that God isn't looking for people to do more stuff for him. Bono, the singer of U2, used to say he, in, in his life, he would try to help God across the street like a little old lady. How many of you know that God doesn't need your help to do anything, really? He's all-powerful. If he's God, does he really need our help to do anything? Yet, yet, he invites us into partnership with him. Oh, gosh, how good is that? That's the goodness of God. To where we say, wait a second, this confounds the mind. That a deity He's not just some deity out there who's looking for servants to do his bidding, but he's looking for co-laborers, partners, who will join hand in hand and ask the question, Father, what are you doing today? Where are we going today? What are you up to? What's on your heart? What are your dreams? How would you like me to treat my kids? How would you like me to treat my wife? How would you like me to navigate the school systems? How how would you like me to pray for your kingdom to come? Jesus, what are you up to today? As part of our new identity in Christ, because we're new creation, you see, because of that relationship with Jesus, we find that Jesus has set up, quote, good works, for us to walk into, for us to partner with him in. And I love this. This is one, me and my friend Ben, this is one of our favorite words in the whole New Testament. The Greek word for handiwork, it's a poor translation. The Greek word for handiwork is poema. There's the, you get a little bit of Greek this morning. Look at that. You see it there? It's the third word. It's poema. And what the English translation is trying to get at, but I feel uh, falls a little bit short, is that this word poema is similar to our English word for poetry. Do you hear it? It's similar to poetry. And so what God is saying here through the Apostle Paul is that you and I, who claim Jesus as Lord, now have the signature of God inscribed into and onto our lives. In such a way, so deeply is the signature of Jesus on you and in you that you can't 
help but shine. You can't help it. What Paul is saying, you are the poetry of God, is that you carry his presence everywhere that you go. That every room you walk into, Jesus walks in right along with you. And Paul speaks to the past here in the verbiage as well. That God himself, that Jesus himself has prepared these good works for you in advance. How comforting is it to know that every room you walk into, Jesus has already been there first. That Jesus has not only been there first, but he's at your side, he's behind you, he's all around you. Because everywhere you go, the kingdom goes with you. You carry the presence of Jesus inside of your chest, wherever you go. You and I are light bearers. We're the shiny faced people. We are lit up with the flame of the Holy Spirit. And we don't have the luxury of turning off this presence like on and off like a light switch. He just comes with you. And when our mind shift changes, we, when we allow the Lord to change our mindset from like, ah, I got to do stuff for God, to like, Father, what are you doing today? Where can I bring the kingdom? It changes everything in our lives. This is God's greatest poetic masterpiece. You carrying the presence of God with you wherever you go. And this is what Jesus was talking about in John 5, 19 through 20, which is a key verse for the vineyard movement in general. But for us here at Vineyard Cleveland too, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says very truly in John 5, 19 through 20, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the Father loves the Son. There it is, out of that love relationship again. For the Father loves the Son and shows the Son all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. He's not just giving us a model to follow Jesus here. He's giving us a template to like imagine what our lives would look like would actually look like if we shifted away from doing things for God and towards partnership with God from this love relationship. In that context, we can say that it is less about doing things or doing more things, but rather it's more about saying yes to Jesus first thing in the morning. Draw your first breath. Jesus, thank you for breath in my lungs. What are we doing today? What are you up to, Jesus? How can I partner with you? Last thing before you go to bed. Jesus, what did we do today? I'm grateful for your presence in my life. Thank you for allowing me to partner with you in all that you were doing and all that you were speaking today. Thank you, God. Vineyard Cleveland it's our desire, Sarah and I's desire, to be a part of a community, to pastor a community 
who would constantly be asking in their normal, everyday, ordinary lives, Jesus, what are you doing? And how can I partner with you in what you're doing in all of these people's lives? That's the community that we want to be a part of. A community that's becoming the type of people. You notice I didn't say doing more stuff. But we're becoming the type of people who more willingly give our yes to Jesus and trust and love that he loves us and he has our best interests in mind. You see that? That as we gaze into the face of Jesus, it's there our, our purpose and our mission become clear. It's hazy when we look anywhere else. But when we look at Jesus, our mission, our purpose, any type of significance, it suddenly becomes clear. What do you have for me today, Jesus? Where can I see the kingdom expressed in the lives of those around me, the rule and the reign of Jesus settling on people around me? Sometimes I think preachers, um, and God love them, I love preachers. Sometimes, sometimes I think they harp on the Great Commission too much in order to get the people to do more work. And I don't think that is a, I don't think that comes from a, a bad or sinful desire. I don't, honestly. Because I think the preachers who do that might be well-intentioned, right? Because here at the Vineyard, too, we believe that everybody gets to play, right? Everybody gets to play. It's not the pastors or the missionaries or the important men of God or women of God or the apostles. It's everyday people like you and me who get to step into the story of God and bring life to the city. That's what we believe, right? And so I think it's that desire where the preachers are like, great commission, go into all the earth. And baptize men and women in the name of Jesus and make them obey. Right? Great commission. But I think that when they do this, they miss the heart of the great commission. And I want to be careful not to miss the, Jesus' heart. Because if we miss his heart, we miss everything. It's called the great co-mission. Meaning we do it together. We partner with God to transform the world around us. The heart of the Great Commission isn't how many souls you can save. The heart of the Great Commission is that you'd be so motivated, so inspired, so encouraged and just caught up, lost in love with Jesus that you couldn't help but bring life to those around you. Can we see the difference between those two things? I mean, I'm asking, can you see that it's not rhetorical? Can we see the difference between those two things? That it's not about how many souls you can save for Jesus. It's just really not about that. God doesn't need you to save souls for, for him. He's completely capable of doing it on his own. He provided Jesus for us. That's pretty powerful. 
We couldn't think up a better plan than that. That's the, that's the plan. He did it. He doesn't need our help. Yet, he calls us into partnership. And that is a partnership of love and intimacy. And we'd be so encouraged that we couldn't help. But what? Give up a Saturday night watching Netflix so that we could go help somebody else move? Bring in the kingdom. Right? That we'd be so lost in love. So just enthralled with the person of Jesus, fascinated by him and beholding him and him alone, that anything he asks us to do, we would say, yes, you got it. It's more important than that other thing that I'm doing over there. That's the goods right there. It's our joy to say yes to him, to say anywhere, God. It's my privilege to partner with you, Jesus. There's no greater purpose than partnering with you. It's so much, it's less about doing the big thing for God. And it's more about giving him our yes in the little things. If you want to find your grand purpose, the grand meaning in everything, huge significance, if you want to make a dent in the world, Try not doing big things for God and focusing instead on doing little things that no one sees. That's what Jesus says. Don't let your right know what your left is doing. And there is the mustard seed. There's the the treasure in the field that when you and I are committed to doing the little thing for God that no one sees, that our Father sees. And it's to those hearts who he entrusts with big things. It's the heart who says, I don't have to do the big thing for God. In fact, God, I don't need that in my life. Give it to somebody else, please. But let me do the little thing for you that no one sees. And in that thing, find my great purposes fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Whether or not this church grows to 7,000 or 70 by the time it's all said and done is none of my concern. The big thing for Jesus. Oh, we're so, we miss the miracle because we're looking for big miracles. When Jesus says, Your joy, Eben, is not in the size of the church that you pastor. It's not in how much money you or I have. It's in none of those things. Your big purpose is to keep your gaze on me, your eyes on me. Period. The founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, gets celebrated for proclaiming that the the world is his parish. Well, Methodists are, they have churches, they don't have parishes. What does John Wesley mean when he says, the world is my parish? I think what Wesley was connecting with and tapping into here is something that the American church needs to tap into drastically again. That Wesley saw his big purpose, his meaning, his significance in the person of Jesus um, extending beyond the four walls of the church. 
That the real, as John Wimber used to say, the founder of the movement, the real meat is on the streets. The kingdom advances beyond the four walls of the church building. And I think that's what Wesley was getting at, that when we gaze at the person around us, or when we gaze at the person of Jesus, it's then that we see the invitations for purpose and meaning and significance are all around us. They're as numerous as the people in your family, your coworkers, your city, your world. Another way to put it is that the bank of love is open for deposit with each person that walks by you. You can make a deposit into that bank anytime. Anytime. Check out St. Teresa of Avila. She got it. She said this, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all of the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. You see, we ask God all of the time in prayer, hey, God, would you shift this? Would you move that? Would you save them over there? They're, so, they're, they're in a mess. Would you save them, God? Would you clothe the naked? Would you feed the hungry? And those are all great prayers to pray. Please, don't stop praying those prayers. The only thing that I ask is that you would open your ears after you're done praying. Because what you might find heaven's response saying is, so send I you. God, feed the hungry. So send I you. God, heal this person physically. So send I you. God, clothe the naked. Take care of the orphans. So send I you. Heaven's response when we pray for shift and transformation here on the earth is so send I you. You're it. I'm sorry. There is no plan B. And you might, you, you might say, that's impossible. How am I going to do it? You're right. It is impossible. But the kingdom never bows the knee to impossibilities. In fact, that's where the kingdom thrives. It's in the realm of impossibilities. In your own strength, in your own power, it's impossible to see the kingdom of God come. With the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, nothing is impossible. You can see dead people come to life, sick bodies healed, Entire school systems shifted and changed. Hungry people fed. That's an easy one when you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. When we get filled up with the love of Jesus and lose ourselves in the love of Jesus, all of the impossibilities of life bow the knee to the name of Jesus. In faith. I say it. Let it come. Let it come. You are the solution, the heavenly solution to earthly problems. You're it. We're it. Rag, tag, 
group of people in Cleveland, Ohio. Why don't you guys join me in standing? I remember uh, Sarah and I drove through Montgomery and Birmingham and Alabama a few years back. And we stopped by Martin Luther King Jr.'s first church that he pastored. It's on Drexel Avenue in Montgomery. Small little church, brick building. You look inside, you can't fit more than 25 people inside that room. Maybe 50. All throughout the world, King is known. There's not one corner of the earth you can go and be like, do you know, you, you don't know who Martin Luther King Jr. is? Like everyone knows him, right? Check it. King knew what we need to grasp here this morning. His greatest end was to see what he called the beloved community in Jesus take shape. But it didn't happen, for those of you who were alive in the 60s can fact check me on this one, it didn't happen as a sudden wide movement of people with millions of people marching. Where did it happen? It happened in the incubator of that small red brick church in, Mont- in the middle of nowhere in Montgomery, Alabama, on Drexel Avenue, where King got together with a small group of people and said, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done. And I remember walking into that church on Drexel Avenue and thinking what King might have thought as he turned the corner from the parsonage and just going to work, you know, opening the back door of the, of the church and getting into the pulpit and encouraging his people again, Sunday after Sunday. I thought, that's the stuff right there. You know, if you and I become the type of people who are willing to give our yes to Jesus at all costs, it's less about the name that we make for ourselves out there. King, if King were here today, he would probably tell you, I could care less whether people remember me or not. I'm after justice. Isn't that what he would say that? But he, what King realized is what I want us to wrap our hearts and heads around this morning is that the shaping of that beloved community called the church it starts as a small seed. It's you and I, it's, it's, it's King and his church in a small red brick church in Montgomery just saying, God, let your kingdom come. 